Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. And today, on this episode of our Zuzalu series, we are exploring some new frontiers. New frontiers and new technologies, all of which are poised to completely revolutionize the world and change everything about the operating system that society is currently running on. Bankless Nation, today we are exploring the frontier of DSI, or decentralized science. What is DSI? It's a really good question because I legitimately had no idea going into Zuzalu, but it became clear that DSI is a great connector of many of the technologies presented here at Zuzalu. DSI is how synthetic biology and longevity have to do with Ethereum. DSI is what is putting Ethereum at the center of these things. The fundamental argument for DSI is that the old ways of doing science is bad. And for the same reasons why the old way of doing money and doing finance is bad, DSI looks at the incumbent system of producing science and sees friction and corruption and antiquation and toxic tradition. DSI wants to use blockchain technology to improve the systems and institutions of science. The mechanisms of how science can use a blockchain is a very big conversation, and the answers are more than a few. But the conversation that you're about to hear with Boris and Mikey will download you on the DSI landscape here. But this isn't just about improving the ways that we do science. This isn't just about, hey, we found a new way to do science better and faster. DSI presents a zero to one step function change in the form factor of scientific progress itself. You know how Uniswap and Aave and ERC20 tokens are just open APIs to financial tools? DSI wants to do very similar things for scientific data. What would happen if we made our scientific data as open and as free as a contract call? What if scientific data was as modular and open as the internet itself? But blockchain tech doesn't just provide new solutions for scientific data specifically. DSI is also marked by an emergence of DAOs, all following a decently similar form factor of capital allocation, financing clinical trials in hopes of investing in a breakout new treatment, servicing the long tail of unserviced patients, which also sounds a lot like banking the unbanked, and a bunch of other similar puzzle pieces that are all coming together in these very variety DAOs that are all trying to go after certain specific use cases uh, in the world of science. So this first episode in this two interview series is with Boris Dyakov and Mikey Fisher, both who are pioneers in the DSI space and helped me have one of the most enjoyable and easy conversations that I had at Zuzalu. And after listening to this conversation, you'll understand exactly what DSI is getting at and whether or not you want to proceed into the second conversation with Alok Tai, whose project Vibio illustrates a specific example of the overall archetype of DSI DAOs that are out there trying to use blockchain tech to coordinate and accelerate scientific progress. So, Bankless Nation, are you ready to explore the frontier of scientific progress? By the way, at Zuzalu, all of the traditional scientific researchers that were there all realized that the existence of DSI implies the existence of TradSci, which was a meme that stuck pretty damn fast. So, all right, let's go and learn about DSI with Boris and Mikey, followed by DSI DAOs with Alloc. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Extra thanks to Kraken, our preferred exchange for crypto in 2023. Whether you're dollar cost averaging into crypto to prepare for the bull market, or you're taking profits out of crypto, be sure to do it with Kraken. The newly designed Kraken Pro makes it super easy to do both your basic financial transactions while also taking your trading to the next level. Kraken Pro is truly the trading UI 
UX that you've always wanted. So if your bull market archetype is the trader class, you need Kraken Pro in your toolkit. But if your character class is more of a DeFi journeyman or woman, then MetaMask Portfolio is the tool for you. MetaMask Portfolio is your DeFi multi-chain battle station. Any asset on any Ethereum layer two, MetaMask Portfolio will present it to you. So don't get caught forgetting assets or missing opportunities. Make sure you're prepared for the bull run by prepping your MetaMask Portfolio. Moving on from tools you need to playing fields to play on, the Arbitrum Layer 2 is one of the main arenas in which this bull market will be fought on. Whether your character class is a DeFi degen, airdrop hunter, or yield seeker, the Arbitrum Coliseum is where a ton of the action is going to be. So whether you're on Arbitrum 1 for DeFi and NFTs, or Arbitrum Nova for Web3 Gaming, or a new frontier on Arbitrum using an Arbitrum Orbit chain, there are so many opportunities to sink your teeth into. But as we know, the Ethereum roll-up-centric roadmap produces all kinds of Layer 2s, and Mantle is one of the newest Layer 2s on the scene, with some of the newest technology that Ethereum Layer 2s has to offer in the year 2023. Mantle is built using the OP stack, but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1, reducing gas fees by 80% compared to other Layer 2s. With billions of dollars standing by from BitDAO to invest in Mantle, make sure you stay ahead of the game by building and growing your on-chain footprint on Mantle. Let's not forget about the ETH staking character class, and Stater makes it easy. Running a staking pool with Stater just requires four Ether for a deposit, letting you charge a fee to the remaining 28 Ether that uses your node to stake their ETH, increasing your yield by 35%. Stater's Staked Ether token ETHX allows you to stake your Ether and use it in DeFi at the same time. For all you DeFi swappers out there, this one is for you. Uniswap X has opened up a brand new landscape to play in, and it's the world of intents. This is where those who employ the swapping ability get to team up with the evil MEV bot army, and they get to band together to discover the most efficient liquidity route through the Ethereum landscape. Gas-free swaps, MEV protection, and theoretically optimal pricing. When swappers and MEVers come together, new metas happen and it's thanks to Uniswap X. So the next time you trade on Uniswap, consider clicking the Uniswap X button to get your MEV protection. And so, if we're truly entering a bull market phase in crypto, which we totally are, then tokens are going to start flying all over the place. So if you're an organization looking to grow with token incentives, then look no further than Toku. If you want to distribute tokens to your employees, team members, or for payroll, Toku can help you comply with labor laws, tax obligations, and reporting for whatever country you employ someone. Crypto is entering its regulated era, and Toku can help you achieve your token incentive award goals with compliance. So thank you to all the sponsors that support Bankless and all the podcast editors, newsletter writers, and operations managers who make the Bankless organization the best that we can be. We truly appreciate your support. And for all the listeners out there who listen to the mountains of content that we turn out each week, especially this one right here. So let's go on to the show. Bankless Nation, we are here at Zuzalu, and I got two people on the podcast with me today. Uh, right to my right, we got Mikey. What's up, Mikey? How's it going? How's it going? And then further down to my right, we got Boris. What's up, Boris? Hello, David. Pleasure to be here. So I've heard the name DSI a number of times. Um, it was uh, had some exposure at East Denver. I've seen it on Twitter, but I haven't really figured it out. But DSI seems to be the thing that really is pinning a lot of these various conversations at Zuzalu together. Uh, that's why the synthetic biology people are talking to the crypto people, right? That's why the longevity people are talking to the crypto people. That's kind of my, my basal level understanding. But beyond that, I don't know what DeSci really is or how to explain this movement to the Bankless Nation. So I'm hoping you guys can help us guide uh, all of the listeners down that rabbit hole. You guys want to do that? Very excited to. Yeah, happy to. But first, a little bit more about you guys. Mikey, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, so uh, I just finished my PhD. I was at Stanford. I was Congrats. studying uh, computer science and uh, natural language processing. 
And uh, after I finished that, I wrote a book on regulating AI. And then I got very interested in, I saw the PhD, and I thought this could be done in a different way. So uh, I got into crypto, I learned about DeSci, and I thought one of the key parts around uh, DeSci was like data and how we could fix uh, some of the problems that exist in traditional academia around how uh, data is collected. So I started a company called uh, DBDAO, which basically like fractionalizes large data sets and then gives, people's in gives people an incentive to contribute data. All right, Boris, uh, tell us about yourself. So uh, I'm a scientist by training. Um, I'm actually a current PhD student, PhD candidate at the University of Toronto and the Ludenfeld Tannenbaum Research Institute. Um, so I'm coming from a different field. My PhD is in molecular genetics, and basically my research is around figuring out where these, uh, which proteins are found within these structures in the cell called nuclear bodies. They're in the nucleus. So I spent most of the past decade pursuing this academic career, uh, really just trying to build a career as a scientist and eventually have my own lab um, and continue to unlock new knowledge about how cells work and how they're organized. And during COVID, I kind of took a step back and started exploring other pathways. Um, and after this sort of long journey exploring business and finance, I eventually ended up getting interested in Web3 and thinking about how we could solve some problems in science that essentially drove me away from the career that I'd been pursuing for so long. Um, and we'll talk about this after, I'm sure, because there's a lot of issues in how science is done, both in academia and industry. But basically, I was thinking about how we can maybe fix some of these problems and uh, realized there were other people coming from my background who were excited about these same problems and were trying to tackle them using some really interesting technologies like DAOs and crypto. So uh, that was about a year and a half ago, and it's been a wild ride ever since. I mean, I think Boris and I are both interested in science. Like, we are both scientists and we both love science. And we both went through the traditional science means of doing science, which is a university. We both saw that there's issues or ways it could be done better. And that's, that's, what, me, that's what excited me about DSI is like, oh, you can still do science, but you can do it in maybe a better way. Mm -hmm. And that's actually uh, just resonates a lot with me because of the, when I was getting into crypto, I was thinking about going down a doctorate of a physical therapy route uh, with the intention of also applying that to mental health and nutrition. And then I found Ethereum and saw one path, which was slow and friction-filled and costly, and the other path, which was new and innovative and fast, where you don't ask for permission. And I kind of think that's why this DSI world exists at large, is because the in, the, the old way, the trad-sci trad 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 is, is old and friction-filled and slow. And I think maybe we're what uh, the people that have got hopped onto the DSI movement have been able to identify in crypto is that we move really, really fast. And there seems to be an appetite in the scientific community to move faster than the incumbent ways of doing things. And that's where this demand for a new form factor of science comes from. That's kind of my sentiment. Is that, is that my over the mark here? Yeah, one of the big things is just accelerating science. In TradSci, um, TradSci... Has that been... Is that, it has, is now. It is. It, yeah. it's started been, saying, yeah, yeah. the SynBio okay. people were like, oh, are we TradSci? <laughs> we're like, yeah, you're TradSci. <laughs> but it, it could literally take two to three years to publish a paper for some things. Um, by the time you like get the funding to the time you do the you play around with the research question to publish the paper to get reviews, it could take quite a bit of time. And it doesn't have the quick turnaround cycles like GitHub or like a pull request does. Mm-hmm. This really does vary field by field. I mean, everything is slow in the life sciences, in biology. Like I work with, I'm a wet lab biologist. And when I say wet lab, I mean, I actually work with pipettes and cells and proteins and liquids and test tubes. Mm -hmm. um, and everything's slow. Bi cells need to grow. You know, all these processes are manual and, and really drawn out. And that stuff 
can definitely speed up and be automated. That's not really a DSI problem. I mean, I think in some ways, the slowness of science can be a feature and not a bug, but not in every sense. There's a lot of inefficiencies that can be sped up. And I, I think a lot of this appetite and excitement for DSI is one, scientists discovering that there's new technology that enables us to coordinate more effectively, make things more efficient, um, do things in a trustless way, of course, and uh, and just exploring the possibilities around that. And then I think on the other hand, people who are coming from like crypto are excited to have more use cases for blockchain technology. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. One thing you were mentioning is like the permissionlessness of um, of it, of crypto. And I think that's one of the things that's become an issue in traditional science is it is a very permissioned system. You have to get grants from a specific agency. You have to get accepted into a university by fulfilling some certain things. You have to then appease the advisor, appease a journal. It is very hierarchical and gatekeeping. Whereas and approval by the FDA, exactly, which is a big one, exactly. right? Exactly. Whereas, whereas what's really neat about this DSI movement is that it's permissionless. Mm -hmm. Anybody can contribute to a research project. If you have the right data, if you have the right background, it's not based on a degree or, any, or anything. It's based on a meritocracy and it's based on the data that's provided. And it's a much different way of thinking about uh, how to do science. If I can add to that, I mean, uh, something we should maybe start with is that the DSI movement, I guess we can call it a movement, um, it really builds on, on the earlier open science movement, which has been around for decades, mm. which has tried to solve a lot of these same problems we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the fact that if you want to read an article, like scientific knowledge that should be freely shared among everyone, you need to get through a paywall. And, you know, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about public, like the whole publishing problem and reproducibility crisis in science. But um, there's a lot of barriers and it really just doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. So there has been this movement of people pushing for making everything open access, open source. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of inspiration that science can and must take from like the open source software movement and those communities because it's just a better way of doing things. It's how things should be. Um, but we, as a community, are kind of trapped in these long-standing, you know, really like strong institutions of science, which have done a lot of good things, but have also kind of uh, missed the mark in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, building off what Boris says, like, DSI is very much um, has its roots in open science. Like, but one of the things that's really interesting is like open science was probably happened like 10 years ago. I don't know. Around like 20, 30. 20, yeah. So it's, it's been around for a thing. while, but it's, 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 it's caught in some waves, but it hasn't really taken over as much as uh, people would have liked, I guess. And maybe the crypto correlate is like the Occupy Wall Street movement, which was a good uh, flag, a banner to rally around that actually didn't really end up moving the needle until Bitcoin came around. Right. Yeah. Love that analogy. Yeah. yeah. It's um, like, oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So one of the things that's interesting about the open yeah. science is like, what what is what is what does DSI offer that builds on open science? Right. And it's um, it's like incentivization mechanisms. Right. So now we have the ability to track research from test tube to final product. Mm -hmm. And so if final product is good, you can incentivize the people that contributed because you have this immutable ledger mm. that anyone mm -hmm. can contribute to and you can track who did what part. And so this is very cool because now we have a way of tracking if someone does good basic science, if does, someone does good 
research, they can now be partial owner of it, the benefit. Whereas in open science, you had your data, you'd throw it over the wall to this journal, to a data set, and you'd lose sort of ownership of that. Mm. And so this is like why blockchain is actually very important for this DSI movement. Just for like attribution and, and creditness and being able to see the source of things and being able to map those things and just having a specific destination of who did what opens up the world of, of collaboration and, and other yeah. and other mechanisms. hundred percent. I mean like the the whole idea of like data provenance is is mm -hmm. a big topic I think in, in crypto and like data science and all that. But the same thing. It's like your contributions in science essentially are only recognized through this chain of citations, which is like right text in a PDF. These things aren't hyperlinked. You know, there are new there are systems now where you can kind of have a, a record of your academic work. It's called ORCID. Um, it's very much a web two kind of you know system. It's it's a step in the right direction for sure. Um, but I mean we have technology to dramatically improve on these systems and then be able to look back and say, wow, somebody's getting a Nobel Prize for this, but here's all the hundreds of people right. who contributed to this. Maybe we should reward them too. Maybe they get an airdrop, you know? Like, <laughs> And the funny thing about it is like it's an like, academic paper, it lists all the people on the top of it, right. but it doesn't say who did what. Right. So you could have a, a research paper with hundreds of people on it, right. and the last name is the advisor, and the first name is the lead author, and then everywhere in between is very complicated on who did what. Yeah. But with, there might be little notes like, yeah. these people did experiments, but like... But with yeah. blockchain, you know exactly who, who did every single part, and like who contributed good data, who contributed bad data, and and with that, why that's important is not for like, it's for a reputation, but also you can reward people like, mm -hmm. oh, I really enjoyed this part of the paper. I'm going to reward this mm -hmm. specific person. Right. And there's, I'm assuming there's more ways to make this really, really codified rather than just like putting Ethereum addresses next to people's names. There's a, uh, I think there's like a, the, um, the idea of like a identity or something. I, yeah, right. There's like mapping the out the value graph of all of these things. Um, one thing that the reason why DSI caught my attention lately is that it seems to fit the same mold of other movements that we've seen in crypto, which is there's this uh, spark that just happens because someone figured out a basic pattern and then that started to get copied a bunch. Uh, and I think, uh, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the story starts at um, Vita DAO, Vita DAO. Uh, and that was like the first DSI DAO that like created this archetype for other science people to be like, oh, there's something there. And then it spawned more and more and more DSI DAOs. And now there's like a slow Cambrian, maybe not slow, Cambrian explosion of DSI DAOs being formed. And so like, I think that's the kind of the top of the rabbit hole of this whole thing. Is that right? I think for a lot of people it is. I mean, longevity is huge in crypto and in tech in general. Um, Vita DAO is doing amazing work. Big fan of what they've been doing. Also the folks at Molecule who have kind of built that whole ecosystem around uh, around Vita DAO. They're, they're doing a lot for the space for sure. And really trying to template that that sort of bio DAO model um, with their whole incubator accelerator program. Um, that's, I think, one type of DSI project, right? This is like, I'm not going to call it an investment DAO, but it's like a, it's a DAO that is essentially trying to fund and support specific areas of research that will hopefully have some sort of translational application, you know, maybe will lead to a drug that will go into clinical trials one day, um, or new cures for something, or new products. Um, and I mean, there's, there's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is that there's like science can mean a lot of different things. There's mm -hmm. so many different fields of science, of course, and they all do things a little bit differently. I mean, we're all kind of surrounded by or unified by the same principle that we're trying to understand how the world works and gather data and analyze it and use the scientific method to create better models of the world around us. Um, but 
science can mean basic research, which is just like fundamental basic research, like math, you know, that may not have some specific application like a drug or a cure for a disease. And then there's things down the line, like biomedical research that is trying to find targets for drugs to hit to cure types of cancers. Um, and they have different types of problems, like in terms of how they're funded or how you incentivize them. But I think that brings me to the topic of incentives, which I think is the other superpower that crypto brings to the problems that science has. So the the thing I was talking about where like these Vita DAOs, these, there's one I interviewed was um, uh, uh, a synthetic biology DAO. There's many of these things. Is that DSI? What is DSI? Like, how do you, how do you put a border around this thing? Like, what, what is actually DSI? is it? What is DSI? I guess that's what we're here to answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a movement. It's like, what is DeFi? It's, it's right. in the same way. It's, it's people that are looking to do, or what is a network state? It's people that are looking to exit the existing system to some extent okay. and use blockchain as an important part or DIDs or collaboration or putting data on chain. Um, but I think it's, it's very dependent on the actual project. It's, it's an idea. I mean, I think we can look at the, the current DSI landscape, the projects that people are working on, um, what's happening in the space, who's giving talks at the various mm -hmm. great DSI conferences and meetups that have been happening over the past year or so. Um, and I kind of have like three buckets I like to put it into. One is funding. So funding is a major problem in science. We need more money for science. How do we get more money for science? How do we create better more liquid markets for biotech intellectual property, for example. Um, that brings up topics like IP NFTs, stuff like mm -hmm. that. So that's one thing, funding. Second, of course, is something we talked about, which is publishing. You know, the, the current publishing industry, academic publishing industry is kind of crazy. And people who aren't in academia aren't aware of how, how nuts this is. I mean, academic publishing houses have, I think, the highest margins of any industry like way higher than anything. It's, it's really absurd because essentially people pay to publish in these journals and then peer review is done for free mm -hmm. by scientists in those fields. And then they charge universities, individuals, whoever wants to read those papers, huge fees to access those papers. It's like a triple payer model right. is what some people call it. So that's the second publishing. And the third is, well, not just third, but I think uh, reputation systems, attribution, data provenance, all that, like all the other things that yeah, and, and much more. <laughs> I, would, I would also add um, reproducibility. Mm. So, um, like, yeah. one of the big problems in science is uh, papers are too complex to be uh, replicable, or the data sets are not open, or the basically the, a lot of stuff can't be reproduced. And DSI has an emphasis on reproducibility through many eyes on data, um, through putting the data on chain. Uh, so that it's immutable, so that it has provenance and tracking and reputation associated with each of it. Um, because I think we're going to go back in 10 years and see that so much of the data, so much of scientific research is just hard to reproduce, so you can't build on it. Whereas like a GitHub project, you can just download it, run it, and see that you can, run, you, can uh, you know, build on it. Mm -hmm. And that's an important part of science is being able to reproduce and build it. Yeah, I think another one more bit to add would be the actual execution of science. I mean, there are projects like LabDAO that are trying to build new tools and infrastructure for scientists to actually do scientific work in a more reproducible way. Um, so, yeah, DSI is a lot of things. <laughs> right, okay, so there, there is no boundary. There's no border on what is and is not DSI. It's not just 
this growth of DAOs who are doing very various things across the, D, uh, the science space. It's just there's a lot more tools in the crypto world that are being leveraged for the pursuit of science. And there's no really better way to like put a boundary on it other than that. Yeah, I like to kind of summarize it as using blockchain technology to improve the systems and institutions of science mm -hmm. and like create new incentives for science. You know, like how do we, something I've been asking myself is like, how do we create a world where everybody wants to be a scientist and has the opportunity to be a scientist if they want to be a scientist? I don't think everyone should be a scientist or wants to be, but you know, how do we increase that yeah. number? Yeah, I mean, I think in the same way D, um, DeFi brought about many different types of traders. Mm -hmm. DSI has the ability to bring out many different types of scientists mm. and many different people who can contribute to science, whether that be through uh, collecting sp specimens around the world of, of nature or of like uh, testing out different uh, nutrition or uh, stuff like that. And um, it has the ability to open up science a lot more. So that, that very much just fits into the mold of crypto, right? Democratizing access, lowering the barriers of entry, making things more permissionless, making yeah. things more, um, kind of disrupting the incumbents no matter what. Yeah. Uh, always kind of table, table stakes for the things that crypto touches. Maybe um, you guys can use your imaginations, put on your imagination cap and just like fast forward 10 years. What's the bull case of DSI? What's the bull case of science? And how and and because crypto enabled it and DeSci fulfilled all of its promises, what does this new world look like? Yeah, um, it's like GitHub for science. So it's as easy to do and reproduce science and get credit for science as it is to uh, use a GitHub package today. Mm. I love that. I mean, <laughs> that's a good question. Bull case for DeSci. I mean. In 10 years, I'd be really happy if most of the new research and most of the new data that is being generated um, is, is going on to some sort of decentralized storage system and able to be accessed permissionlessly with a record of who did the work, who built on the work, what kind of computation was done on it. And, you know, we kind of disrupt this whole model of the PDF as the token of, of mm. knowledge, you know, progression. Um, but it's so much more than that. I think I, think I would really... I'd really like expect to see new funding models to appear, um, new ways of rewarding people for their scientific contributions. Again, science takes time, but at least having the framework in place and, and seeing early results of that would be would be what I'd love to see. Yeah. <laughs> well, while talking to some of these uh, the DAOs, um, it was uh, Vi, uh, Bio was one of the DAOs I was uh, I, one of the interviews I have in this track. Uh, it was interesting to see that there's an explicit investment thesis, an investment case for some of these things where like you put in capital, this DAO goes and funds projects, it funds new medicines, new research for new medicines, and then the, the DAO owns that IP or that provenance, maybe, I don't know what to call it, but that, I, that whole concept, and then that DAO grows in capital because it produced this one medicine that is demanded by the market. So the fact that there's like financial, uh, financial incentives to grow this thing makes me uh, pretty bullish just on this idea of being able to converge science and financial incentives in a ways that hasn't that has been full of friction right we already know that the bankless nation knows the frictions of the traditional financial system uh, they are probably at least now starting to wake up at the very least to the frictions of the scientific community and I think the whole idea of DeFi and DeSci is that we get to take friction away from both and turn on this propeller of innovation. Maybe that's another way to articulate this whole thing. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of, so <laughs> maybe I want to- There shouldn't be barriers to contributing to scientific knowledge. Like anything you do throughout the course of your day should be lo- could be logged and you should have the ability to contribute that or you have some sort of insight, you should be able yeah. to contribute that. Um, have, have your data be shared and, and be rewarded for sharing the data. So, and, and there's some things that actually lend itself very well, like you were talking about earlier around um, diet and nutrition. I think this is something that uh, has the ability to really take off in DSI because this is something that is very longitudinal. Mm-hmm. So any anything you eat, you should be able to take a picture of that thing Put it to some DAO, uh, say how you felt, share that data set. That data set is purchased. Mm-hmm. And then uh, everyone who uploaded a picture of their, their food and their data point of how they felt after it could can, could be rewarded when this data set is purchased. For and the, this is for some, the minute share of data that they contributed. Exactly. Into pro the rata. Pro yeah. rata. Yeah. And this is something you can actually do with DBDAO. Okay. Um, is like you get rewarded based, you get you fractionalize a large data set so that when it's purchased, everyone who contributed to it gets a portion of the rewards. But this is something that works very, very well for DSI. Mm-hmm. Other things are a little, they're not to say that they don't work as well, but they're a little trickier. Like I want to do like scanning electron microscope research. It's a little harder to democratize mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. something that is, uh, uh, that more people can participate in. Yeah, yeah. And again, so many, so many different uh, dimensions to DSI as an idea, as a, as a field, if you want to call it a field or a narrative, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were talking about DeFi and DSI coming together, right? So um, something that I, I don't know if it was Paul or Tyler from Molecule who kind of birthed this BioDAO ecosystem, including VitoDAO. Um, I remember a talk that I, I watched from from one of them back in like 2018, and I only saw this a year and a half ago, but it really inspired me because they were talking about the idea of IP NFTs as enabling a much more efficient biopharma IP market, intellectual property market, because now you can sort of wrap intellectual property in an NFT wrapper and fractionalize it and create much more transparent and liquid markets and enable things like prediction markets for, you know, drugs that are in clinical trials. Um, Because Mm. the the whole biopharma industry, it's very opaque and it's very very hard to access unless you're an accredited investor. It's actually probably impossible. So they thought, well, how about we bring more liquidity to this, use this to fund more research, and sort of hyper-financialize a lot of these things, a lot of these ideas, like has happened in in crypto. And I think a lot of scientists are turned off by that term, but I actually see it as a superpower of crypto that can really fuel a lot of innovation and a lot of discovery. And, I mean... We, yeah, I, I want to come back to scientists and crypto, but I mean the the, I, the term hyper financialization generally turns a lot of people off. We definitely need to find a new term for that. The way that I've explained this in the NFT space is like a lot of the resistance to NFTs came because like, oh, you're putting finance in in our art. Get your finance away from our art. Yeah. And I always try and flip it around on them. It's like, well, you're actually putting your culture into finance. Yeah. Like these are an opportunities yeah. right. to take your culture and make our finance less banky. And more artsy. And so, like, finding new ways to explain, like, yeah, hyper-financialization, but also, you know, incentives, compensation, rewards, upside, growth, yeah. all of these, like, adjectives that have been uh, missing from so many different other industries. Also accountability. So, mm. like, science is accountable-ish, but if there's a chain connecting everything together, mm. you can see where the weak points are, and you can start to tighten them up a little bit, uh, which I think is probably needed at some point. Definitely. I mean, so... One thing I, I feel like I need to say is that um, 
there's this question of onboarding scientists into Web3. Even with DSI really picking up steam over the last year, it's still hard to get typical scientists working in labs, working in universities to kind of pay attention to this because, one, scientists want to do science. Like, most of them don't want to be writing grants and, and exploring new things. They want to work on what they're interested in. Second, crypto has a pretty bad rap among the, you know, the normal, rest of the world, the, yeah. the rest of the world <laughs> right? So if you say the word crypto to a scientist, they kind of recoil with disgust. They lose right. interest. They don't, want, they don't want to hear about it. They, they think it's all monkey JPEGs and scams. Right. Um, and, I mean, you know, of course, scams are a problem in crypto. Right. But the yeah, other I thing mean, is... You're, you're, not, you're not wrong about, yeah, that, I mean, about yeah, that characterization. Yeah. So, so when I talk to, to my colleagues about DeSci, I start off with blockchain technology and mm -hmm. start explaining why blockchain technology is unique and why an immutable ledger enables, you know, us to do things in a trustless way. And mm -hmm. then they start paying attention. They start thinking, oh, okay. So I thought it was just money. I thought it was just like right. bitcoins. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 no. It's just technology. There doesn't need to be money in there at all. That's just like the first use case that was actually, you know, a really good use case. I think one of the interesting things is going to see the how DSI and TradSci sort of interact. So, like, look at like Uber. Like, it never compete. It, it competed with taxis, but Uber never tried to change the existing taxi industry. Mm. And I think that there's an argument to be made that DSI won't necessarily compete with TradSci in the sense that it's going to launch its own initiatives around health and wellness, around nutrition, around longevity, mm -hmm. around cryogenics, things that are typically not touched as much in traditional science, and then develop its own ecosystem that is sort of bifurcates from the existing infra infrastructure. So it's not going to try and get money. A DSI project is not going to try and get money from the NSF. It's right. not going to try and do research at Stanford. It's not going to try and do research, publish in Nature. Like right now, we have Ethereum. It could, it, it could <laughs> but like Ethereum doesn't publish their EIPs on right. uh, a computer science journal. Right. They have uh, their own research thing. They have their own EIP thing, and they've developed this sort of own bifurcation on how they do uh, on how they do improvements. And I think that there is a, definitely a possibility that. Uh, DSI will bifurcate from TradSci mm -hmm. and it'll develop its own ecosystem because it's just it's oftentimes so hard to move an existing right. uh, culture <laughs> within something that only the people that want to participate in it will participate in and the people that don't will just continue on the way. Mm -hmm. to, to add to that, I mean, I, I feel like my bull case for DSI is that all of traditional science just becomes dis synonymous with decentralized science things that we talk about I mean, now. Science is supposed to be decentralized yeah, in the, yeah, in yeah. the <laughs> ultimate use case. Yeah. Like science is supposed to be a marketplace of ideas exactly. and uh, com com competition. Something is true until it is proven false and stuff like totally. that. Totally, but, but exactly. So it's supposed to be that, but in a lot of ways it isn't. And there are a lot of misaligned incentives which lead to things like most of the data being published not being reproducible in like biomedical research some ridiculous stat, like 60% or something. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, again, with this technology, we have opportunities to build new systems which address those problems, which create the right incentives to address those problems. I'm being a little bit vague because right. we're still figuring this out, and right. a lot of people are excited to discuss these ideas. If you want to jam on DSI, come find us on Twitter and uh, come to the next DSI conference and meetup. Um, DSI NYC, we have them monthly, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you were in the shirt, nice. Like wearing the T-shirt. Um, I should have worn a Gitcoin shirt. Uh, we'll talk about Gitcoin and funding after. The Bankless Nation is very familiar with Gitcoin. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, it's we need a bankless nation for DSI. Something like some term, <laughs> like d- something less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but so that's the thing. I think really like DSI is just going to be the new infrastructure for how science is done. I mm-hmm. I don't think that DSI is going to replace our current scientific institutions. It's not going to replace PhD training programs. Like there's a lot of value that you get from the science apprenticeship of Agreed, yeah. being in the lab and doing the work and being around scientists and just like becoming a scientist. Um, but I think we can improve that process by bringing new funding sources by, you know, creating new incentives, like I keep, I keep saying, but just making things more efficient, better tools, making it easier to, to collaborate and to publish your work. It's like sort of really simple stuff in a lot of ways, but scientists need a good reason to start doing things in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's where we need to work. You know, what problems can we solve for scientists now that will sort of create an entry point for all this technology to, to flourish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with uh, what Boris is saying around PhDs are still important and mm-hmm. needed in some areas for sure. I think one of the- That's not the part of science <laughs> we want to disrupt, right? <laughs> well, you, you actually do learn something in a PhD uh, for right. four years of X number of years. Four years? Of dedicated research. Like it's, it's, it is useful in doing these hard subjects. Um, one of the interesting things around DSI that's a bit of an unknown still is like how ChatGPT plays into this and how mm. AI comes into play. Can an AI... Can you learn from an AI? Can mm. can an AI take the role of an, a previous what previously had a PhD advisor? So could an AI mentor you and be like get you up to speed to be doing uh, deep foundational science mm. research? And can you use can can ChatGPT then say like oh do this experiment and I do the experiment and then I upload it to DSI and then I get rewarded for it? So I think one of the things I'm very excited about in DSI is also more of the integration of AI mm. into how mm. it thinks. I mean, one thing that would be really cool is like when you're writing a research paper, one of the important parts is like related work. AI could generate that thing in an in instant. Right, 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 and that right. thing would previously take a human, you know, a long, long right. time to write. So a there, there's, time. A, there's a lot of cool things that were th- things that are f- fundamentally changing here, which will even further propel DSI. Mm-hmm. I was wondering when AI would come up during this conversation. Um, because something that I've noticed a lot around the conversations uh, regarding crypto and AI together, it comes down to like, you know, decentralization of models and reproducibility of these models and being able to trust that this was the model that was run to give you your output. And all of these same problems are directly transferable to other areas of scientific computing, like computational biology. Um, so I, I think there's a lot, a lot of space to explore there. Um, the design space is huge. Also things like knowledge graphs mm-hmm. and discourse graphs and how you can use that to train AIs and also reward people who have contributed to this work. I think crypto has a big role to play in all of these emerging technologies. Um, and all these emerging technologies have a big role to play in science. So at some point, we're going to stop talking about DSI. We're just right. going to talk about the different products that people are building on. <laughs> I think... Um Maybe this like whole like new frontier for for listeners is like oh man I didn't really expect this this is like a un- unexpected turn of events for crypto to like be in- integrating into the science space but I think it's it's worth kind of zooming back out and putting on our Kathy Wood hat because Kathy Wood was always about hey. Uh, um, uh, gene editing synthetic biology crypto AI these are all intersecting. And so these are all coming together. And because our products are finally becoming like useful for each other, 
These are all these are all new technologies that are outside of the system, and they're all using each other to help bootstrap each other. And like from the crypto, I'm coming from the crypto side of things. The providing new scientific tools to a new scientific community is probably like one of the most legitimizing use cases of crypto that we've ever created. Yeah, agreed. And one of the things that's slightly different around DeSci than DeFi is there's exogenic information right. being added to the system. Mm -hmm. So when I conduct... Great word, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> when I conduct an experiment, I'm taking data from the natural world and putting right. it on chain. That is creating value. Mm -hmm. When people are swapping tokens, it's a different type of value. Right. That it's a is speculative being, value. It's, yeah. it's a different type of value. But when someone is when I when someone does something and you know creates actual creates value that way, and that's what's going to drive um, like these projects mm -hmm. to create value is mm -hmm. like it, there's useful information here in the mm -hmm. same way when someone builds a house they're taking uh, lumber and nailing it together and that creates something that's like really valuable and here when you take data and you conduct experiments and you put it on chain and you do analysis on it and you show it's reproducible that creates tangible value beautiful guys this has been a great first exploration into the world of design I'm excited to, to go down this rabbit hole even further if people are peaked um, is there a, a starting place that you suggest to them? Like, how would one get started exploring the, the deeper the world of DSI? Uh, DBDAO.xyz has a one pager on uh, DSI, and you should also check out all the meetups that are around the world um, uh, DSI NYC, DSI Tokyo, mm -hmm. DSI London. Mm -hmm. uh, there's many more out there, and you can Google them and uh, find them. We will put the link into the show notes. Um, I'd also add the Ethereum Foundation has a pretty good and comprehensive page for DSI with tons of links. Um, and if you want to see what some of the current like new projects in DSI are right now, check out the DSI Gitcoin grant round. That is, I don't know if it's going to be before or after this, but you can get a get a sense of like what are people trying to get money to build right now in DSI. Mm -hmm. um, this is part of the whole new grant stack and Allo protocol launch at Gitcoin, which I had to talk about at some point because mm -hmm. um, I'm organizing the DSI round along with some Ooh. community stewards. So. Beautiful. Guys, thank you so much. This has been, uh, uh, I've learned quite a lot and I think uh, I'm very optimistic about this world of science on, on the blockchain. It's nice to be able to say on the blockchain again. I haven't said that in a while. It's all just going to merge together. Yeah. <laughs> on the blockchain. Cheers, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. We are here with Alok Tai of Vibe Bio. Alok, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So we are here with the uh, in the synth synthetic bio track at Zuzalu, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, way more broad than I ever thought that it would be. And, and we got introduced at uh, just one of the uh, the talks today. And so maybe you could introduce yourself and explain what a little bit about what Vibe Bio is. Yeah. So uh, I myself, I'm actually a scientist. Mm -hmm. I spent about 15 years uh, at the bench doing research, um, then caught the software bug and started a bunch of software companies focused on the biotech industry. Um, those companies went on to raise about 100 million plus in venture, a few hundred employees, doing pretty well. But you so know, an entrepreneur builder at heart. Exactly right, and uh, someone who not only was a practitioner of science, but also I've had the fortune of seeing how different functions in the life sciences industry operate. Uh, having built tools for clinical trials, for R&D labs, etc. So uh, have a, I feel like I've was fortunate enough to have a really unique viewpoint into how pharma operates and how the overall drug discovery process unfolds. And so can you go into a little bit about the, the problem that, that you're tackling here with Vibe? Yeah. So um, as an organization, you know, we were founded uh, in, in 2022. Um, the impetus for founding Vibe was that while I was building software companies in the life sciences space um, in mid-2021, my wife and I were fortunate enough to have our first kid. Though the pregnancy went okay, unfortunately, our daughter was born very sick and spent a long time in the hospital. Uh, one of the reasons was because 
the diseases that she had uh, were somewhat common, the biology well understood, but unfortunately there were no dedicated therapeutic options available to her, and as a consequence, she spent a long time suffering. That's an interesting dichotomy, a common disease without uh, a ready-to-go treatment. Correct. And that was sort of my uh, focal point when she became sick, right. where in a circumstance where a lot of people suffer from this disease, when we truly understand its root causes, why is it that we don't have a treatment, much less anybody working on it? And that became an obsession for me, and that translated into Vibe Bio today. Okay, so t talk to me a little bit more about that. Um, wh what were you, I'm sure, as a very concerned adult uh, parent of your first child, uh, you were watching them, I'm assuming, uh, live in the hospital. Uh, the archetype, the, the typical uh, uh, response, at least the Hollywood response, is that they go on a, a learning uh, they go down a rabbit hole. Is, is that yeah. what you did? Uh, I'd say very much so. You know, I think in my case, we were fortunate enough to live in Boston, which has phenomenal medical um, mm -hmm. establishments as well as a deep biotechnology corridor. And so uh, given my experience having built software companies in the space as well as having been a scientist, it allowed me to very rapidly spend time with everyone from biotech founders mm -hmm. to pharma companies to uh, venture capitalists to truly peel back the onion and understand why in this circumstance uh, we don't have treatments for these sorts of rare diseases and for diseases at large. Okay, so uh, just redefine the problem for me one more time, just zooming back mm -hmm. out, and then we'll start to talk about uh, what you, your next steps were. But the problem was that there wasn't a solution for this common, common disease. Yep. Yeah, so basically uh, for my daughter's diseases, the there were no dedicated uh, therapeutic options. And when we started to understand why this exists, we start to realize that the challenge was not finding a cure, but rather funding them. Mm. Further, when you actually look at the incentive structure within the pharmaceutical industry, they often try to go after the largest potential diseases and deprioritize the balance. But when there's 13,000 plus diseases out there, it's really hard to get the industry to focus on more than just a few hundred. So we saw this dual fold challenge of both capital, capital access, but also incentive structure and alignment to go uh, have the metal to go find uh, treatments for these sorts of diseases. Is the right mental model for understanding this is like, especially when you say we know what the disease is, we just don't have the cure. That sounds like one half the problem solved at yeah. the very least, but it's about, uh, you know, continuing on this arc down to, to go to the other problem. It sounds like the uh, maybe a way to articulate this is that there is a long tail of diseases out there. Mm -hmm. And with the current incentive structures of uh, venture capital and research and perhaps maybe insurance is involved, that they don't really care or they care less about. The, the system cares less about the long tail of diseases. Is that a way to articulate this? I think you sort of hit the nail on the head because when you look at the incentive structure today, a lot of these companies are valued based on the net present value mm -hmm. of the uh, drugs they pursue. Naturally, that guides those medicines to the largest potential diseases as opposed to uh, you know the remaining 13,000 where there's actually good economic opportunity, mm -hmm. a measurable amount of unmet need, but just get deprioritized in comparison. And one of the areas that we've often seen this challenge emerge is as these medicines are being studied and developed, as they approach what's known as an inflection point, it becomes an opportunity for the company to prioritize and double down on usually the largest diseases and deprioritize the balance. So to your earlier point, the venture capital funding environment, as well as the decision-making and incentives, just unfortunately deprioritize these sets of diseases. And we see new opportunities to be able to course correct for there. 
Yeah, and I think uh, Bankless listeners who have been listening uh, to, with us for a long time will probably understand there's some basic patterns that are probably about to emerge here. Yeah. Uh, first, we're talking about capital coordination and yeah. failures in capital coordination. Mm -hmm. um, what is crypto other than uh, tools for coordination? And when we talk about uh, the long tail of things, usually that is where these weird new frontier technologies actually get their way uh, to get their start. And so I'm, I'm assuming the audience and myself, actually, uh, starting to see the seeds of how blockchain yeah starts to work. But before we started talking about how, because again, we're at the, the bio uh, week of Zuzalu, where mm -hmm. bio meets blockchain is the name of this particular week. Yep. So I think listeners can see where this goes. Uh, but first, I still want to do a full kind of autopsy of the system of incentives that has left, uh, that has created this failure mode in addressing the long tail of diseases. Can you really just walk us through the full problem set so we can really understand this problem? For sure. Well, so drug development is a very complex, long-term highly risky endeavor. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it starts with the first process of discovery, which is really trying to understand the root biology of a disease at the mechanistic, you know, whether it's the genetic or the cellular level. In those circumstances, whether it's an academic institution or an early stage biotech company, you have scientists in a canonical lab trying to better understand the mechanics behind a disease and then hopefully elucidate a gap that you could potentially use to treat that disease. From there, there's a myriad of tools that have been developed over the past two to three decades, from small molecules to antibodies, gene therapies to CRISPR, that allow you to be able to then go and uh, remediate that disease. And those are then identified in that discovery stage. From there, those medicines are then moved into what's known as uh, preclinical development, where you figure out how to manufacture it, test it for safety. And if it passes that bar, you can then move into a clinical trial step. Mm -hmm. Most folks, especially given the pandemic, are probably familiar at a high level with clinical trials, but you're essentially running an A-B test, if you will, to use software parlance, mm -hmm. of the drug versus no drug right. to see if the drug actually works to treat that disease. And then ultimately, if it does, then governments, the FDA, regulatory authorities, will allow you to then sell that medicine out. And so when you start to break down that overall approach, what ends up happening is that that cascade uh, ends up focusing the industry on those diseases where there exists a well-trodden path, but those diseases, uh, sorry, those medicines that pursue a well-trodden path are usually going after diseases that already have some treatments that are already out there. Mm -hmm. In the totality of time, however, what we're also starting to see is that diseases themselves, whether it be a cancer or an autism or IBD, are actually not one large disease but actually are composed of hundreds of little diseases. Mm. So we're mm. seeing this other broader industrial shift away from sort of one drug to try and treat everything, and often poorly, but rather very targeted, very specific medicines that treat very explicit diseases out of the gate. So this is sort of the overall landscape. Uh, overall, I'd say there's probably $1.2 trillion a year that are invested in pharmaceuticals every year, um, and maybe almost 80 to $100 billion a year just in the R&D phase. Uh, as a whole. So a lot of opportunity, I think, to drive efficiency, but also I think a lot of uh, opportunity for uh, communities to also play an important role. Sure. Yeah. And, and the, intuitively, every time there's a step that a one of the in, in this process of creating a cure for a disease, that probably makes the longest part of that long tail less and less viable. 
right? Yep. So every new step is just more cost. And we, we reduce the ability to go and we have to, you know, not risk too much. We can only risk a little bit every time new steps get created. What, what would you say is uh, the most critical step in this that has removed the most of the long tail? Yeah. Is it, I might guess that it's the FDA and regulation, but I won't speak for you. What, what are the big steps here that we should focus on? Yeah, you know, I think the uh, items that I would highlight is this broader concept of inflection points. Okay. Unlike the software world or even Web3 where you can get incremental users easily, uh, in the uh, biotech world, value is created by these highly binary events known as inflection points. Mm. An inflection point is essentially a piece of data or an experiment that helps a produce uh, an understanding around a given medicine and supports its continued advancement and investment. Some example inflection points that are in the drug development process are when you prove in a petri dish that this candidate medicine actually could treat a disease, or you do so in an animal model, or you do so in a human, like in a clinical trial. Those are example inflection points. And I'd say some of the key gaps that often emerge are uh, in this process, not only the fact that there's multiple of them, as you pointed out, but getting medicine into patients is usually a very expensive and time-intensive endeavor. And as you start to go down this long tail, there are fewer and fewer people that you can actually go and collaborate with Mm. to actually run those trials, which makes it even longer and more expensive. And so as a consequence, I think you see people wanting to mitigate that kind of risk and focus on those uh, better trodden paths. Okay. So it's, it's, you wouldn't say there's any one particular obstacle. It's more of just the, again, the holistic system just doesn't produce the resources and the connections that need to happen. Yeah. It's death by a thousand cuts, unfortunately. Right. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's the worst kind of problem. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> okay, so let's go into the solutions. Like, uh, So we can talk about uh, Vibe Bio a little bit here, but then also just high level, uh, again, using the principles that we've talked about at Bankless, maybe we can keep that in that theme of just like uh, capital coordination mm-hmm. and you know going and expediting the process and, and yep. at- uh, attacking the long tail of diseases. So where does this conversation start when we talk about the solution here? Yeah, well, you know, I think we're really fortunate that I think Vibe's approach has drawn a lot of inspiration from how... Uh, patient communities have actually remediated these issues in the past. Mm. So if you actually reflect on the past half century of drug development, there's been many circumstances where um, medicines were actually not developed by VCs or by uh, the FDA, but actually patient communities themselves. I'm, I'm assuming out of their own raw need for the solution. Exactly right. When no solution exists and the existing institutions don't see it to be viable, mm-hmm. patients themselves have rallied together in the form of a community, often instantiated initially as a charity, raise money philanthropically, and then invested in drugs and drug development themselves. Mm-hmm. So some of the most canonical medicines we think about, uh, the vaccine for polio, mm. treatments for cystic fibrosis, forms of hypertension, etc., were actually backed not by the FDA or by uh, traditional institutions, but actually by these patient communities. Mm-hmm. So, and just intuitively, I'm guessing that events like this that happen are probably for addressing diseases and solutions to diseases that are probably just just further along on the frontier than the long tail, right? Not still not super far out, but still like close enough because that's probably what are is the next most viable kind of disease. Is my intuition right here? I think you know you're hitting an important point because. Oftentimes, the legacy institutions look at numbers today around a given disease in that long tail. But time and time again, what we've seen is that 
uh, the medical establishment underdiagnoses a disease when no treatment exists because you never want to give ah, false hope interesting. to a given right, patient. Right. But the moment a medicine actually comes to the forefront around a given disease, you see this magical expansion in the mm -hmm. overall number of patients. Cystic fibrosis is, a, is one of the most canonical examples because in this specific circumstance, dating back several decades ago, there were only about uh, you know, a few thousand patients known in the United States. The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which was founded to find a treatment for cystic CF, ended up funding to the tune of tens of millions of dollars a company called Aurora Biosciences, which eventually became Vertex Pharmaceuticals today through an acquisition, and brought the first set of medicines to the table for CF. After that those set of medicines uh, were brought to market and awareness was uh, grown, we saw the patient population roughly 10x mm -hmm. over that period of time because diagnostics improved. Mm. So even those diseases that we think are long tail, actually once properly vetted right. and diagnosed, actually become pretty substantial. Right, so it's almost like just a search problem, right? Exactly right. Yeah. And so what we've also started to see is that this same model that the CFF has pursued has led us to, again, uh, things like the vaccine for polio, treatments right. for forms of hypertension. And I think this broader concept of communities come together, coordinating capital, have led to not only transformative medical outcomes, but huge financial wins. Right. Vertex Pharmaceuticals is an $80 billion market cap company that does seven, almost $7 billion a year in top line, all from about roughly 10,000 patients globally in CF. United Therapeutics, which is started by Martine Rothblatt, does over a billion dollars top line initially started uh, focusing on pulmonary arterial hypertension, mm. et cetera, et cetera. There's many such examples where these are transformative medical and financial outcomes um, when uh, operated in this way. Okay, so I, I cut you off to go down that little rabbit hole as we're talking about the solutions here. So maybe let's pick up that that thread. Yeah, uh, let's just can we can continue going down what what uh, Vibio is and and how the puzzle pieces all come together. Absolutely. So what we saw is that model of community driven drug development as being a true inspiration for mm -hmm. what we do at Vibe. And so Vibio essentially wants to take those that model and put it on steroids. So Vibe is essentially a community of patients and scientists that help identify and fund treatments uh, and specifically treatments to move them through an inflection point. So we have a, a broad-based group of communities that we partner with, as well as uh, patient charities and science, drug developers that help us identify and vet these high potential medicines that exist inside biotech companies, academic institutions, et cetera. We then provide capital mm -hmm. to be able to help advance those medicines at the point where it's hardest to get capital to then ensure that those medicines are able to show their potential and then be able to recoup our investment once they're able to uh, obtain proper sources of funding. So we're really- so, so it's an investment vehicle. It's a, it's a way to allocate capital to invest in uh, the opportunities that Vibe has identified are good financial opportunities that are also targeting diseases and cures for diseases that are not being targeted by the current yeah, institution. Exactly. Our, you know, near and dear to my heart are sort of rare and overlooked diseases, which about half of the right. projects we're evaluating right now are sort of in that space. But we see a broader opportunity where this challenge of medicines sitting on a shelf as it approaches an inflection point is a common problem across many different diseases. Mm -hmm. And so we see an opportunity by which we can help unlock capital and help ensure a medicine gets a shot on goal. Okay, so uh, where does the blockchain element fit into this? Where does the crypto yeah. element happen? So, you know, w when we started, we saw a huge opportunity to empower patient communities uh, 
because of the work we've seen from other organizations as a form of charity. Mm. But what we saw is that in the current instantiation of whether it's a C-Corp or academic lab or charity, you have inherent limitations. Some of those limitations include how many people can participate and have ownership. Limitations in terms of the types of and quantity of capital that you can access, as well as the risk tolerance of that capital. So what we see is actually a DAO is a really unique construct because it allows you to have essentially infinite scalability of ownership and participation, mm -hmm. especially amongst the patients themselves. Second, it allows you to leverage something like tokens to be able to raise meaningful sums of capital from a source which is both looking to take on big projects and take big swings like in crypto, but also provides liquidity. But then third and finally, is that we see it as an opportunity by which any proceeds from those medicines can flow back to the community to be reinvested mm -hmm. in the next generation of projects. So we see DAOs and these sorts of communities and that approach as being a very high potential uh, way to kind of scale, uh, scale the development of medicines in this way. And that's why our mission at Vibe Bio is to find every cure for every community. Would it be fair to classify Vibe as, um, as just a, an, investment, an investment DAO? I think uh, we initially would sort of see it as a capital deployment uh, mm -hmm. approach that enables this sort of uh, this approach to financing that we call inflection point financing. Mm. And I think our hope is to be able to then enable investment DAOs to come in and take advantage of that model. Unlike a traditional uh, investment DAO, one of the other pieces that we're also starting to build is technology to allow us to evaluate rapidly these high potential projects. Mm. Because one of the issues that emerges right. as capital allocators is often adverse selection. Right. And I'm sure that's something that you know a lot of your listeners have probably seen across a myriad of other DAOs and projects. So we see uh, our remit as being not only uh, advancing this approach to financing around inflection points, but also building the tools to make sure that DAOs and communities can make good financing decisions. Can we just go do the um, just the anatomy of Vibio? Like, sure. Say, and like we'll go through. Maybe there's like a big like step one, step two, step three that we could talk about. Like how yeah. do we how do we understand the story arc here? Yeah. So let's uh, so maybe taking a step back. Vibe as an entity is about nine or so folks. About one third, one third, one third, one third on the community and marketing side, one third on the drug development side, and one third on the software and engineering side. And so, as a team, we are actively engaged and partnered with biotech venture capital firms, biotech founders, um, patient communities, mm -hmm. who oftentimes are in the flow of high potential medicines that just aren't quite ready for a larger round of financing or proper partnerships, say, bigger pharmaceutical companies. So we are receiving proposals from them at basically every day of high potential medicines that with a modest amount of dollars, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands, maybe a million or $2 million, could actually get some real... Uh, pivotal data to advance that medicine. So that's sort of step one is sort of mm -hmm. the partnerships and the ecosystem that we're looking to build to be able to identify those high potential medicines. Second step is diligence. In this case, we sort of run two processes in parallel, one to look at the financial plan of those candidate medicines and to evaluate its, its potential. But then second is to go and do a deep dive in, uh, enabled by our scientific community to ensure that the scientific rationale is solid mm -hmm. and that the scientific plan around obtaining that data is viable. This is, I think, the hardest part because today, a lot of that work inside pharmaceutical companies and venture capital firms is highly laborious, takes months on end, and is laden with friction. Right. This is, I think, another area where communities, especially DAOs, of domain experts 
can actually expedite and rapidly evaluate projects at scale. Third is finally financing. So once for those projects that sort of exceed a certain bar that we decide to fund as a community, we then release funds uh, to that organization and do so in uh, partnership with an external service provider who's going to run that experiments and obtain that data for the biotech. So that's sort of the three-step process, proposals, diligence, and then eventually funding. So to put this into different terms, is the first step like, um, like deal flow sourcing, except for diseases, Bingo. right? And so like, what is the best disease that we can identify that we think that we have a viable path to create a cure for? Mm-hmm. And that's step one, is like deal flow, but with these diseases and opportunity identification for the best diseases that aren't being yet addressed by the fat tail that are on the long tail. Mm-hmm. So the, step one is like disease deal flow. Yes. <laughs> um, step two is like, Okay, let's pr- let's push that through the due diligence process. Yep. Let's stress test this. Yep. Let's make sure like we can have the assurances that this is a good investment. And then if it passes that, then it's actual investment. Exactly right. And then and then that's when like you finance what is a disease startup, which is like um, what it takes to make a cure. Mm-hmm. And then that cure, if that if that is, if cure is successful, is owned by the Vibio org. And that is the way that the Vibio has like profit or capital generation. Yeah, great question. So we're we initially had uh, started out when we launched uh, about nine months ago, spinning up new biotech companies around these candidate medicines, mm. investing and building out teams to pursue them. Oh, cool. Yeah. I still believe that to be a long-term path in right. terms of how we can enable communities to pursue medicines and enable the focus on those diseases. What we're doing at the moment and what we found greater scalability is that many of these high potential medicines already reside within biotechs that have a team, capital, labs, etc. But oftentimes, as these biotechs approach an inflection point, their boards are trying to focus them in on, say, the highest potential medicine because they lack capital to pursue the others in parallel. So instead of us, say, taking on the, the medicine, that team already has the expertise the infrastructure and the know-how. So what we're actually doing is providing them with access to capital to run drugs two, three, and four in parallel with the the first one. Mm -hmm. And then when that institution is able to get to the next round of financing, we're then paid back for the amount that we had shared risk on. Mm -hmm. And then would be the idea is like for these new companies that are generated, you have some sort of stake in them. Correct. And and they only exist because they have economic viability probably because they've identified a, a cure for a disease that is in need because that's yes. what the original process was for. Exactly right. Exactly. And so this this is like kind of an org of org sorts of things where every single new org comes out is has decent assurances that it's going to be a viable uh, capital growth org. Yeah, I'd say so. I think the interesting thing is that when you look at sort of the incentive structure, because a given biotech uh, is financed to the point where it can pursue, save one high potential medicine, they often tend to aggregate to a few hundred sort of diseases out of the 13,000. Mm-hmm. In our case now, through our financing mechanism, we can actually enable them to have multiple shots on goal mm-hmm. to becoming a successful biotech. Um, because if you only have one med- medicine you're working on, that's a lot of risk right. that you're putting on right. the organization. So what we're seeing is that our inflection point financing model allows these biotechs to not only get to the inflection point, but second, increase the chances that they get there. And if they do, and they have multiple drugs that work, have outsized value Mm. once they do. So it becomes a really exciting model, I think, longer term, and one that we've been getting a lot of really positive feedback at this conference and elsewhere about. Right. 
Is one more time this? Uh, where does the actual a DAO element? So the yeah. this it, what? It, I don't think there's much of a blockchain here. It really just sounds like uh, there's some governance decisions, and that's really the main application of the crypto world to this. Yeah. So I'd say right now we're just trying to get the basics of the business model working. Mm -hmm. So we have yet to launch the token and formally instantiate the DAO. Unfortunately, being based in the U.S., there's a big yep. uh, regulatory we uh, shift. On that yet. <laughs> <laughs> Love to hear your thoughts yeah. on that at some point uh, today. But um, yeah, so we're right now currently trying to get the mechanics, the diligence process, and the tooling right in order to be able to uh, scale up the model mm -hmm. uh, using tokens. So one of our investors is Ryan Selkis uh, from Asari. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm sure someone you know as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, one of the things he's mentioned to me in a recent call was that he views tokens like fuel. He's like, if you have a dumpster and you add tokens to it, you're going to have a dumpster fire. Mm -hmm. But if you have a rocket ship, then you'll get rocket fuel and then reach the stratosphere. And the analogy he was trying to make is that you have to ensure that both your community and your core economics and business model are mm -hmm. sound before you add tokens to the mix Certainly, um, yeah. to ensure that you can actually start to scale things up and make good decisions long term. So that's why we've been really methodical over the past nine months to focus in both on our technology product as well as um, our community build to help find really exciting drug programs. Is it too early to ask like what the mechanism of the token does? A little too early at the moment. But I think uh, thinking of it as a governance token, sure. um, if we choose to launch one in the future, when we choose to launch one in the future, is probably the right mental model. Yeah. But right now, we're sort of instantiated as a C corp uh, with uh, cash off our balance sheet and a few high net worths, and so that's what allow has allowed us to get some pretty good momentum and uh, hopefully initially prove out this model to then be able to extend out using a token potentially in the future. Okay, so the, the original process that we're talking about, the three the three steps, the deal flow, the due diligence, and then the, the financing, yep. the, that is what be, would be governed over, I'm assuming. Correct, right? that, in that's the future. The core thing. Yeah. Yes, you got it. Beautiful. Uh, so we're, we're proving it out in a centralized way initially with mm -hmm. the first couple in a scrappy, lean way, mm -hmm. and then intend to translate that over to a more formal DAO or other sort of vehicles over time. Why does it need to be transferred over? Why can't that just be contained to the experts? Um, I think the diligence process for sure should be, but the part that we've seen as we spent time with over a thousand patient uh, families, patient charities, is that patient communities, I believe, having been the father of one, that they should be involved in two facets of the drug development process, most importantly, prioritization mm -hmm. and capital allocation. Mm -hmm. And I think diligence for sure should be pursued by uh, experts, but ultimately the final sort of uh, check to be written, I think patients should have a seat at the table for. Okay. And that would mean that they ha they have a say in governance. Correct. Right. And so, do you know, maybe it's, again, too early, but do, how would they get their hands on tokens in order yeah. to, to have that governance power? So some of the things that we have been talking about in the industry for the past couple of months has been uh, looking at the overall tokenomics and the uh, allocation of tokens, enabling patient communities themselves to have a pretty measurable, if not the largest stake in, uh, the in a DAO itself. And the way we would do that is instead of giving it directly to individual patients, because that's hard to, to vet, is in the U.S. especially, many of these diseases that don't have uh, treatments are instantiated as 501c3 charities. Mm -hmm. So we can actually provide tokens and allocation to the patient charities themselves, the, the foundations, and enable them to be part participants and, and owners in the process such that not only can they govern, but they can also capture some of the upside if the overall project is successful. Mm-hmm.
So without um, knowing really the specifics of the, the full role of the token in this org, mm-hmm. when did you have the aha moment about using crypto tools to help facilitate this? And what, what really brought, brought the idea of using a DAO to the table for you? Yeah. You know, I think that really happened in, in mid-2021 after my daughter was born because I had started getting into crypto a few years prior. Um, what really excited me personally was the vibe for lack of a better phrase, uh, within the crypto industry and Web3 more broadly, and its potential I think it has to sort of rewrite Wall Street and how money flows. Mm-hmm. But then when my daughter got sick, what I knew after having peeled back the onion on this industry and the, some of the challenges is that we truly need ownership to extend to people other than those who are purely financially motivated. And second, we also need participants who, are, who, are, who want to inherently take big swings. Mm. And when you start to think about those two requirements, when my wife and I looked at other sorts of vehicles, a C-Corp, a foundation, an academic lab, they all had gaps and only a DAO and Web3 really enabled those two in the long term. Mm. So, you know, we saw that as the telltale that that was the technology stack we should be building on. And those are some of the principles that we should be bringing in from the get-go. And these other sort of canonical examples like the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and the March of Dimes, I think just further cemented that from a community standpoint. Sure. So it was more, it, maybe it was less about the these specific technologies are exactly what I need, but it's the community ethos and the community culture that is what you want to align with and what you want to attract. And so perhaps that was why why you were more open to adopting crypto tools in a time where other people found it kind of unsavory. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's a fair statement. I think I'll be candid that you know, I think of myself first and foremost as the father of a sick kid. Mm. And in that circumstance, I'm not dogmatic about what technology I use. Right. I want to go solve the problem. Right. And it just so happened that I think uh, Web3, DAOs, community-oriented coordination tools, I think are the ones that are going to have the lo- best long-term potential mm-hmm. and are is the direction we want to head in. And I think the broader industry does too. So what other piece, have we touched on every single piece of this story here or what uh, stone have we left unturned? No, I think we hit on a lot of the, the key pieces. You know, I'd actually love to ask you a question, sure. which is, um, you know, you sort of mentioned the the volatility in the, in the Web3 space and mm-hmm. the regulatory environment. Yeah. You know, that's one of the challenges I think we face today and why we're in part taking our time and being really diligent on any sort of white paper and uh, tokenomics is because of the regulatory uncertainty, at least mm-hmm. in the United States. Curious to hear what you've been seeing, given your your perch across yeah, yeah. the industry. Sure, yeah. So the again, without without too much details, there seems to be some of the common patterns found here. So we have a governance token. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have this organization that invests in opportunities, and then hopefully harvests those opportunities to be reinvested back to the org to invest further. Yep. Which means capital appreciation. Mm-hmm. Um, if that means that we're putting this thing, and that is being governed by the token, like. The equity, the word equity and governance token are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, my regulatory ears are definitely perked. Yep. Uh, and so, but also at the same time, uh, that relationship between, like, coordination between capital, financing the long tail of not just diseases, but planet, everything, planet Earth, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many long tail things that humans 100%. haven't discovered yet. Like, this is why we use, we're on the frontier at Bankless. Like, yep. we're on every frontier. Right now, we're talking about the frontier of de- diseases that haven't been addressed yet. Uh, and so, like, using crypto as capital coordination tools, along with tokens for incentive alignment and giving upside to communities, which is one of the core primitives of this space, yep. like, that is 
what we are here to do. Uh-huh. And then sadly, Gary Gensler comes into this conversation and says, hi, hello, no, you can't do that, uh-huh. uh, which is really sad, right? And one of the big um, themes that I've noticed while like listening to the talks over at the Synthetic Bio and the longevity, um, long, long, longevity tracks and, and talks is that, man, the FDA really messes everything up. <laughs> and I, I don't find it any, like, it's not a coincidence that, like, the crypto industry is frustrated with Gary Gensler. The longevity community is frustrated with the FDA. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, top-down regulation really comes in and hampers a lot of progress and robs a lot of opportunity here. Mm-hmm. So with regards to the regulatory conversation, like, I mean, I'm not a lawyer and I don't really have too much advice for you other than just, like, yeah, you're kind of, like, pushing <laughs> up against the boundaries here. And... Yeah. Not that I want to encourage any sort of just like violating the law, but some point, sometimes it takes the bold to push the frontier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the crypto industry is gearing up to fight back against Gary Gensler. And we are currently, Coinbase is currently doing that. And uh, you have a bunch of time, it sounds like, before you enter the fray. Mm-hmm. And so a, a lot of new things could have happened by then. Yep. Um, but uh, the stories like this and examples of what we could do had we the freedoms that we desire in the crypto space to unlock opportunities like this is exactly the kind of stories that need to be told to the world. Um, So it's just a matter of uh, earning hearts and minds of the people to say, hey, Gary Gensler, like, back off. Because even members of the SEC are saying that to him, right? And so it's really just this one rogue actor. We don't, I don't even want to call Gary Gensler the SEC. He just happens to be in the biggest chair. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of a rant without any specific answer, but those are those are all my thoughts for you. Yeah. Well, I think, to be candid, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of how uh, the technology can be better understood and better integrated into broader society, at least in the U.S., where I think it really comes down to individuals and them mm-hmm. speaking up about the value it creates for them. You know, as silly as it sounds, I think the analogy that I often think about is actually Uber when it first launched, right, in 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. 2010. You know, uh, I remember when it launched in the D.C. market, uh, the local government came in and shut down Uber. They even arrested and impounded one of the early no black cars huh. yeah, that were on the Uber network. And so what ended up happening and why did Uber end up becoming as successful as it is today and pervasive, right. even though it was illegal in many cases? Same with Lyft. Right. I think it was because the value to the end customer mm-hmm. was so obvious and the pain point so large mm-hmm. that... And the opportunity so great. And the, op- and the market so large that everyday Americans found value and use in it because they couldn't find a safe and accessible mode of transportation from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And now this magic piece of software like Uber or Lyft gave them that, and they were willing to vote people out of office who wanted to take that right away. Right. And so I, I don't think it was easy by any means for so, Travis yeah. or John or any other folks there. But I think it was a circumstance where the world recognized that this needed to exist. It created real value and therefore was willing to advocate for it. Mm-hmm. And I think crypto is at that point now where it needs to find that same set of opportunities and that same connection to the everyday American. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it's DeFi, maybe it's DeSci, maybe it's uh, something else we haven't discussed yet. But I think that's really the key point. I think you sort of nailed the, uh, hit the nail on the head in that regard. Yeah, and I think it's important for the li- listeners to really imagine that um, we're, we're talking about this one particular use case, which is attacking the long tail of disease to get new solutions for that. Right. And that is one application of human coordination and capital coordination mm-hmm. that of many, of a full spectrum. And that's so right. think of this story that you've heard today, Bankless listener, as one of 
another set of long tail applications that are across the entire space of capital coordination and what is at the root of all things, which is money and capital, right? Yep. And so it's not just prevention of uh, already known diseases and solutions for already known diseases. That's that we're talking about. That's just one of one of many. Uh, applications on a long spectrum of possibility that is being hindered by being able to connect financial upside with long tail solutions for long tail problems. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the part that intrigues me the most about the long tail is that when you are in a circumstance where you're not being prioritized or valued by legacy institutions, I think DAOs become a really interesting structure because it empowers communities mm -hmm. who care about that problem, right? Who, who, are who didn't to it. have a voice prior. Exactly. Now it gives them tools, it gives them people, right? And it gives them capital. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the pieces that are absolutely critical to tackle everything from climate change to uh, diseases to, you know, who, who knows what else. Alok, thank you so much. If people are further intrigued by going down this particular rabbit hole for, for uh, Vibe Bio, where should they go? Yeah, uh, you can check us out on our website at vibebio.com. That's V-I-B-E-B-I-O.com. Or you can check us out on Twitter. We're at, we're at Vibe Bio. Mm -hmm. Who do you want to hear from the most? What kind of talent or, or person out there? What's the archetype of the, yeah. of the that you're really missing that you need to talk to? We're looking to talk to any biotech company or academic uh, scientist who has a high potential medicine uh, they see the future and how it can help patients, but are struggling to be able to get that compound to an inflection point to raise traditional capital. We'd love to be able to help support any biotech company with a promising drug in that regard to get to an inflection point. Alok, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.